Hello, this is uh, Khalid Ali, the Screening Room Editor, reporting from Khartoum, the fourth edition of the Sudan Independent Film Festival, January 2017. I'm very pleased to have here with me today Amy Hardy, PhD, and a filmmaker and the Head of Research at the Scottish Documentary Institute, who's uh, joining us as, as a guest of honour at the uh, Sudan Independent Film Festival to uh, hold some workshops and screen one of her beautiful films that she will tell us more about. But first, I'd like Amy to introduce herself and tell us a bit about her work as a, an academic and as a filmmaker. Hello, I'm so happy to be invited to the 4th Sudanese International Film Festival. It's a real treat for me to be here. And I think this international perspective is something that has always been very important to me. When I went back to Scotland, which is my home country, from London, from the National Film and Television School, and from working as a television director in London, the first thing I wanted to do was to bring the international perspective to Scotland. So I set up the Scottish Documentary Film Institute with Professor Noe Mendel. And our aim was to bring international filmmakers to Scotland to run masterclasses and to show the Scottish television makers how they could make long-form documentaries that would go out on the international film festival circuit and even perhaps be bought by international television houses. And we succeeded in doing this. So, in fact, we've been doing it now for 13 years. And, for instance, I made the first feature documentary that went out internationally, um, The Edge of Dreaming, and this year we have four going out internationally. I'm interested in the notion of academia and film, uh, you being a, a film academic and a filmmaker at the same time. Tell us about the links between the two. It's wonderful to be in a university as a filmmaker, and I have strong relationships with different departments. So one example is that I have made five films with the Centre for Regenerative Medicine. So I made five films focusing on stem cells. I got funding from the Wellcome Trust, and I worked with eminent stem cell researcher, a woman called Professor Claire Blackburn, who actually discovered how to make a new organ from stem cells, the thymus, in the body. And we made some short films, and then we made a feature film on stem cells. And in fact, the university was so pleased because these films have been seen in over 190 countries with millions of viewers. And in fact, they gave us the Tamdiel Gold Medal Award for public impact in science. So the university sees the value of film in terms of getting its story to the outside wider world. Um, and I see the advantage in having incredible stories close to hand. The work that my colleagues in the university are doing is very exciting to me. And I love the fact that I'm allowed to be free of the constraints of the industry so that the films I do, they are always hoping that I might find 
new ways of defining cinema or new ways of working with audiences. You're attracting a, a different audience uh, than the standard cinema goer. Uh, you're, in, you're engaging with academics, with students, you know, worldwide. So that takes the humanities message at, on a global scale. So this takes me to uh, asking you about your next film, The Edge of Dreaming. Tell us how this film came about and, and tell us about its reception as well. I was doing the first PhD by practice in film and television at ECA in Edinburgh University. And I wanted to explore the concept of death, to explore our mortality. It's a subject that artists over the years have struggled with, so nothing new there. But I felt I really needed to understand it. And I was doing it in quite an academic way, looking for other people to film when I had a dream. And I don't normally remember my dreams, but this dream woke me up, it was so vivid. In the dream, my horse was standing in front of me and he looked at me and he said, I'm going to fall down to the right, are you ready to film? And I knew in the dream that he was going to die. So I woke up very anxious and I thought, I will just go outside in my nighty and my Wellington boots in the middle of the summer, just to check he's okay, because I'm so disturbed by this dream. And I went outside, and the horse was lying there dead. So this is the first time a dream had had an impact like this on me, because of my background in science films, I was very rational. So I was able to forget this dream, because I think random things happen all the time. However, I then had a second dream. And in my second dream, I was told that I would die that year when I was 48. And I also ignored this dream. I thought this is because I'm doing a PhD on death and it's making me too anxious. However, my lungs began to collapse. I got degenerative fibrosis of the lungs. I had to go to the hospital all the time and there seemed to be nothing they could do. I was going to have to get a lung transplant and so I decided to use my scientific background and I found a top neuroscientist, Mark Solms, who has the President's Medal for services to um, science of the sleeping and dreaming brain. And what he told me really shocked me. He told me that it's possible that the nerves in my brain had set up a kind of pathway that was so vivid in my dreaming brain that it was programming my body to shut down. And he said, the fastest thing I could do was to go back into the kind of chemical soup of my brain that would allow me to make those same synaptic connections so that I could rethink the message that the brain had given me, and he suggested I do it through hypnotherapy or find a shaman. I couldn't believe this, mm. and I found a shaman, and it changed in 40 minutes. The programming of my brain to my body, I felt it change, and within 18 months, my lung capacity was back up to 100%, and I was discharged from the hospital. This made me very interested in the link between brain and body. It also made me very interested in how we cope when we think we're going to die. 
how do we still find meaning? Because most of the time, I don't know about you, but for me, I find meaning because I make a plan and then I organize my life around the things I want to do in terms of raising my children, in terms of making my films, in terms of the life together with my husband, in terms of the way I am with my horses. I'm always imagining the future and working towards it. And so when you take the future away, how do you find meaning? How does this change your identity? So these questions brought me to want to continue making a film around the topic of our mortality. And the local hospice, Strathcarran, which is actually the largest hospice in Scotland, they saw some of the work I did with families and they asked if I would like to be filmmaker in residence. So that's a fascinating story. You took two messages from two dreams and you turned this around into a creative process of, of a film that you made engaging in the subject. You were talking about your own mortality and sharing it with the world. What about the recognition reception for, for your film? Well, as you can imagine, I thought, who will want to see this film about a woman's dreams? You know how it is in the morning. If you meet with someone and they say, let me tell you about my dream last night, you go, okay. And I thought, no one will be interested in this. But actually, that hasn't been true. The film has been translated into 14 languages. Wow. It's been in 40 film festivals. It's been shown all over the world. It went to America. And I also ran workshops after the film, engaging the audience by allowing them to bring their personal experiences to the topic. And so it won some nice awards and... It allowed me to see that however individual and particular a story is, if you can tell it with enough subtlety and make the experience compelling enough for an audience, they will always go with you on that journey. So how did you move from the edge of dreaming to Seven Sons for a Long Life? And there is a connection there that I'd like you to share with us. Because I had thought I was dying, I began to make films of my children. I didn't tell them about the dream. And I found it so comforting to know that even if I was going to be dead after this year, if nothing worked, then my children would have this archive of our family life together. And in some way, they would be able to say to their own children, look, this is how your grandmother brought us up. And so I was filming very ordinary scenes of life, you know, putting my kids to bed, cooking, cleaning, playing together, doing homework, being on the hammock together, putting out the washing, very ordinary life. And when I met some people who were facing a bereavement in their family and they were so shocked, they were kind of frozen with anxiety. And you know, some people in Scotland are not very good at talking about their emotions. And so I said, I can come into your house and I will show your children how to make films and we will have fun together. It will be a family activity. And as I projected every week the films that the children had done of their parents and the films the parents had done of the children, in fact, those filmed images became a new channel of communication. Mm -hmm. I was very strict. I didn't let them talk to each other in the beginning. But the gaze of the child and the parent the gaze of the parent on the child was so full of meaning that it was impossible not to speak. And so the hospice heard about this because it had a huge impact. And 
As we know, we are all living much longer. A disease that would have killed you within six months, 20 years ago, now you can survive for 10 years, even 15 years, but of course you don't know. So we are dealing with huge uncertainty and hugely increased numbers of people who have been diagnosed with a terminal condition. Strathcarran Hospice is at the very forefront of dealing with this. They have a fantastic daycare centre where people are encouraged to stay at home, but they come in one day a week and they have their medical needs and their social needs met and the hospice coordinates their doctor, their hospital consultant, the nurses, the social worker, and also um, some emotional and spiritual care. And so I was based in the daycare ward for one year, and I loved it so much that I then stayed for another two years. And that's when you started thinking about making a film about this uh, great place where there is a real essence of comprehensive, um, holistic care? I thought I would do these workshops that I described. That's what I expected to do. And I did do them a little bit, but actually one man started singing to me. And when he sang, he poured all his passion, his desire for pleasure, his delight in life, his need to connect with the people around him. All of this poured into the song and I loved it. And I made him a little music video and he really enjoyed this. He sent it to all his relatives all over the world. And slowly, more people in the hospice came up and started singing to me. And I was so intrigued by this that I showed some of the songs to the BBC. And they loved this and said, could you make a feature film? And I said, yes, I think I can, because I've met incredible people who are responding to their situation with courage and with humor. And really, they're front runners in a journey that we all face. And perhaps there really is a film here. And so that's how I made the film. They bring so much of themselves and so much of their own fear of dying to the screening that I designed a workshop so that we could use the energy of the film to actually help people think about their own mortality and how they want to make their own end-of-life care. And that workshop fills a gap because we already have things like the Advanced Care Directive, but so many people won't use it. They don't want to use it and they leave it too late to think about this. And that's why we are in a big crisis in the UK. If you're asked, 80% of people say, oh, I'd like to die at home or I'd like to die very suddenly. But that's not what happens. We don't die at home and we don't die suddenly. We often die in an atmosphere of tremendous anxiety where no one knows quite what to do and where the family are very distraught. And having worked in the hospice for three years, I know that there are alternatives. It doesn't have to be like that. And so I designed this workshop and then a government body in Scotland called Healthcare Improvement Scotland saw the film, went on the workshop, and now they've asked me to design a workshop with their doctors so that the doctors can train other healthcare professionals to use the film. And then very exciting for me is that over 300 GPs 
have now requested the film to hold it in their surgeries. And actually, when they only have 10 minutes with a patient, it's great for them to be able to say, I know it's hard to talk just now. I know you're in shock after your diagnosis. There is something I can offer you, um, which perhaps will help you discuss what you might like to think about with your family. And they offer them the film. It's almost like they're prescribing the film and then they come back and they're able to talk with the doctor. Doctors prescribing film and and being myself a film lover and passionate about film, this is opening up uh, new communication channels, talking about difficult, sensitive, challenging uh, subjects such as end-of-life care and advanced care planning. So this is, in essence, what I can call film therapy. We, we're using film as a as a medium to, with uh, for healthcare professionals and patients and their families to open up and talk about um, difficult medical and, 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 and psychological and, and, and mental health problems. Again, I'd like you to tell us about the global reception for the film. Well, I was really delighted to be invited to um, the film festival in Seoul, in South Korea, and even more when I was invited to show the film at the third conference of Palliative Care. And in this conference, um, we showed the film and we created, well, it wasn't really me, it was the people in the conference, doctors and academics, they created a, a working action party because the first palliative care bill in South Korea had just come out. And we decide, they decided to use the film to create a discussion between themselves that resulted in an amendment, a proposed amendment to the bill. And the proposed amendment was this, that besides doctors and healthcare professionals planning the care for the patients, the patients themselves should also be consulted. And this is a huge good thing. And I think this will affect the lives of millions of people in South Korea. And I'm delighted that they felt that the film was evidence to see how good it could be if you take your patients as collaborators in their care. For the listeners of uh, of, uh, the podcast and Medical Humanities, where can they find the film, where they can watch the film? They can go to the website, Seven Songs for a Long Life, and they can find the film there. But, you know, I like so much that you you notice the creative endeavor to get out to audiences in different ways. And there is something here, you know, cinema is such a new art form. It's only about 100 years old. If you look at the epic poem, that's been going for 6,000 years. The novel has been going, you know, for about 500 years. Painting has been going for 40,000 years. So really, I feel that cinema hasn't discovered its full potential yet. And the area that I'm most interested in exploring and expanding is the quality of live interaction between the screen and the audience. In particular, when you're telling a story, you change the story according to the audience. You work with the audience so that they can bring more and more of themselves. And when I've shown a film like The Edge of Dreaming or like Seven Songs for a Long Life, the audience have gone through so much. They've identified so strongly. I've taken them on a journey that has pulled out many aspects of their personality. 
in the edge of dreaming, they've gone from a very rational self and they've gone deep into their subconscious. In Seven Songs for a Long Life, they faced fears that never come to the surface. They've gone through the pain barrier of thinking about death for themselves and for others. I almost think it's such a waste to then say, oh, goodbye, out into the night, go and have a meal. No, you have to work with people at that point when they're very receptive, when they have access to parts of their brain that often they don't have. And that's where I think cinema can do so, so much more. I would uh, summarize this for healthcare professionals by the notions of film therapy and interactive cinema. I think this is there's a lot for us to take uh, and reflect upon and think about when we're seeing and, and, and talking to, to our patients and their families in our, our everyday professional life. Thank you very much, Amy, for sharing with us your personal experience by talking to us today and on film. It's been a pleasure and a privilege, and I'm so happy to be here in the fourth international Sudanese independent film festival. It's been wonderful to work with these very talented Sudanese students of film, many of whom are doctors. Thank you very much, Amy. 